would turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 17. Be looking at verses 7 to 10. Uh, this morning we had a wonderful men's prayer breakfast yesterday. And Polly, as always, outdid herself and made Cracker Barrel envious. Uh, and that is a compliment. And I uh, want to thank Jason for his teaching there. We had a good time uh, again this morning. If you're visiting with us, we have a dinner on the grounds. If you did not bring anything, that's okay. Uh, we would love to have you in there. We will be eating in the gym. And this is a what we call a missions lunch. And typically what we're challenging our uh, people to do is to donate money that they would typically uh, spend towards a meal. And that all of that money will be going towards mission trips for our members to help minimize the cost. So uh, we we certainly welcome you uh, to join us this morning. Well, look with me, and uh, I guess you could say the synopsis of this passage is verse 10. Jesus said, You also, when you have done all that you've commanded, say, We are unworthy servants. We've only done what was our duty. Let's pray. Lord, this is a very important passage. It's not necessarily a well-known passage, but it should be. We pray you would give us ears to hear today. God, we just pray that this text would permeate our affections, our will, our mind, and have the intended effect when the Spirit inspired these words, when Jesus originally spoke these words. And we just pray that uh, our church, Fisherville, could be conformed to the image of Christ having heard this text preached. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today is the last day of the Major League Baseball season. And for those of you whose teams are not making the playoffs, like David Stratton, the New York Yankees, um, it's a very grievous day because you will be watching teams like the Atlanta Braves uh, in the playoffs. And then for those of you that follow the Reds, you're still holding out hope that on Tuesday... You will beat the Pirates in a one-game series to determine which team will go to the playoffs. Uh, we love sports, don't we? We love baseball because it is merit-based. It is works-based. If you perform, you get the hardware. If you don't perform, you go home. Uh, so there is this team element to sports. There's also the individual element. If you don't perform, you don't make the team. If you don't perform, you don't stay on the team. And the reason we like sports is because in a very real sense, sports mirrors life. Much of life is merit-based. If you're going to get a job, you have to perform on the interview. If you're going to keep a job, you have to perform in the job. If you're going to be promoted within the job, you have to perform. It's like that in school. If you're going to earn the degree, you have to perform. Much of life is works-based. And it also helps prepare us for these things because sports teaches you to persevere under less than ideal circumstances. It may be that you don't feel well and you must continue to persevere. You're beat up and you're sore and you're hurting. You may have an unruly coach that you're called to submit to. All of these things are preparations for life. But here is the danger. When we take that performance mentality in our spiritual life, when we take that performance 
mentality towards God. In other words, if I perform, if I, if I do these righteous acts, God will give me favor and I can escape punishment. If I don't do these things, then I will not have favor with God and I will be punished. But that's not Christianity. The gospel of grace, the gospel of Christianity is this. I am accepted fully by God through Jesus Christ and his finished work. Therefore, I obey. Therefore, I perform. Every other religion in the world and the default mode of the human heart, the operating principle is this. I obey. Therefore, I am accepted. Every other religion in the world teaches, if I obey God, I will get something from God. The gospel of grace teaches us that I obey God to delight in Him and to resemble Him, to image Him. And here's the threefold problem. We were created by God to magnify His glory, to reflect His glory. We don't really uh, most strictly bring Him glory. He's infinite in glory. You don't bring Him anything. What we do is that we magnify his glory like the moon magnifies the light of the sun. The moon does not have inherent light. It magnifies the light of the sun. The only purpose for which we were created is to magnify the glory of God. The second part of this threefold problem is that every other religion in the world, and we could just bullet down to religion... Because it is man-focused, man-centered, eclipses the glory of God. Like the moon eclipses the glory of the sun when you have a solar eclipse. The moon gets between the sun and the earth and you cannot see the light of the sun. Every other religion in the world eclipses the glory of God because it is man-centered. The third part of this threefold problem is that this religion is the default mode of the human heart. The human heart that has not been captured by grace. And the Pharisees were the poster children of this kind of religion. Every righteous act they did was so that they could be justified before men. They lived for human approval. They lived for the praise of men. And... In fact, when we do anything outwardly that's noble, if it is not motivated by the name of God, the sake of God, the glory of God, then in a real sense, there's something that rules our hearts that is not God. And that was the Pharisees. And because Jesus knows this kind of glory-denying, self-exalting way is intrinsic in the sinful heart... He spends much of his time in the Gospels critiquing it. It's remarkable how much of his time is spent not critiquing just outwardly rebellious and sinful behavior. Most of his time in the Gospels is spent critiquing religion. Because that is what is most dangerous for people like us. And what he does to, to do that is setting forth what real discipleship is. Now, in our text, today, 
Jesus is still speaking to the disciples. Notice in verse 1, he said to his disciples. He had been speaking to the Pharisees in chapter 16, verse 14 and following. And really what you have is this kind of vacillation. Jesus will one moment be speaking to the disciples, and in the next moment he'll be speaking to the religious people. He's critiquing religion by showing what true discipleship is. Now, he's been doing this for some time. We saw as far back in chapter 12, verse 1, where he says, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. This kind of outwardly religious activity that is not motivated by the glory of God. That's not motivated by a heart that's been melted by grace. And then in chapter 14, he warns, when you give a dinner or a banquet, don't invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors because they can pay you back. What he's saying there is that's what the Pharisees do. Everything they do is to get a payback because God is not enough. And in our present text, we saw in chapter 17, verses 1 to 4, that is the scandal of religion. When we live in such a way that demonstrates that God is not sufficient. God is not enough. In fact, in chapter 17, verse verse 3, he says, Pay attention to yourselves. Again, pay attention to yourselves. Don't be like the Pharisees. Now, uh, what our text is going to give us today, verses 7 to 10, it's quite a short text is another acid test of discipleship. The first acid test is that we have a biblical view of sin. Uh, We take sin seriously within the body. Here we have another acid test. And here's one of the ways you can tell whether you are a true disciple or merely religious. This is one of these acid tests. A real disciple is a person who says, I cannot believe God loves me. It is an utter miracle. It is inexplainable that God has forgiven me of my sins. That is an acid test of discipleship. In other words, a true disciple is in awe of God for saving him, for saving her. The religious person is not in awe. Or rather said, perhaps the religious person is in awe of himself for all the things he does for God. All the things he does for God's people. Real disciples recognize that everything that we have, everything we do that has any noble... um, um, Nobility behind it is all of grace. In other words, a true disciple understands that he is completely in debt to God. And a religious person does things to put God in debt to him. That kind of sets up our parable today. And we see the parable that Jesus lays out to communicate that in verses 7 to 9. Notice with me in verse 7. He says, Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, Come at once and recline at table. So he is setting forth a story here, a parable. 
And the scene is kind of like this. It's the end of the day, and you've got this servant who is depicted as a farmer. He's depicted as a shepherd, and as we'll see later in the text, he's also a cook. He's kind of a jack-of-all-trades. He's a renaissance guy, all right? He's, the, he's the, the kind of guy every woman wants to marry who can do all of these things. And he raises this question that when the servant comes in from the field... Um, Will any of you say, wow, thank you for what you've done. Just come and sit at our table. Recline at the table. After all, doesn't this servant deserve some pampering? After all that he's done, he has done his due diligence. He's done his job. Doesn't he deserve to sit at the table and rest and dine and eat? And in verse 8, we see that the answer is no. Look in verse 8, he says, Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me? (laughs) So he's been working in the field. He's been shepherding. He's been farming. And the master says, I'm not impressed. You've just done your duty. Prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink. I'm the master, you're the servant, you've just done your duty, and afterward, you will eat and drink. Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? And so the parable turns on this idea that the servant, who is merely doing his work, he's merely doing his duty, doesn't place his master under any obligation to reward him. Okay, in this regard, the the word here, thanks, he says, does he thank the servant? Um, The idea here does not refer to a mere verbal expression as much as the idea of the master now being placed under the debt of the servant because the servant has done his job. It would be like a, a kid who cleans his room and and makes up his bed and then he deserves reward from the parents for doing so when all the kid is doing is his duty. And so this message is designed to critique the Pharisees. It's designed to critique religious people who think that they are impressing God by doing what is commanded of them. That they think that somehow God is beholden To your glory and to your merit because of what you have done. And this is a mentality, if we're honest, that is intrinsic to all of us. This pharisaical mentality. Jesus is opposing any idea here, any notion that obedience to God, duty to God, should be a ground to earn merit. To earn approval from God. And that leads to the principle. It's a short parable. And then he gets to the principle. Notice in verse 10. So you also. When you have done all that you were commanded. Say we are unworthy servants. We've only done what was our duty. In short. Obedience isn't to be a cause. For merit. But a fulfillment of duty. Now, this is a hard text. It's a very hard text. 
because of this reason. The Bible clearly links obedience and blessing, doesn't it? The Bible clearly has this nexus, this link, this connection between obedience and blessing. God has designed the created order in such a way that when you obey Him, there is human flourishing that comes with it. When you are living for the glory of God, when you are seeking to obey Him, there is this blessing that comes on your life. That's why you don't meet many dysfunctional families and dysfunctional people who are living for the obedience of God. But as we consider Luke 17 in the grander scope of the entire gospel, and as we consider Luke 17 in the grander scope of the entire biblical narrative, it is very clear that even our obedience is all of grace. You understand that? If you, are obey, if you desire to obey God, it's because God has changed your heart. He has changed your affections. And so it's like a kid. It's like a kid who borrows money, or rather takes money from his parents so that he can buy his parents a birthday gift. So that he can buy his parents a Christmas gift. You're just offering them something that is already theirs. Let me give you a few texts for that. Peter, who would have certainly been standing here at this moment, will later write in 1 Peter chapter 4. He will say, As each has received a gift. Now, what is this gift? We tend to think of spiritual gifts, and there's certainly that in the passage. But in, in essence, he's talking about salvation as well, saving grace. As each of you has received a gift, use it to serve one another. As good stewards of God's varied grace. Notice, you're just a steward of God's varied grace. Anything that you do is just an issue of stewardship because God has given you the grace to do it. Varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. And whoever serves as one who serves by the strength God supplies. Do you get that? If I'm supplying, if I am serving... If I am preaching, I'm only serving, I'm only preaching, I'm only discipling, I'm only evangelizing by the strength God supplies. It's not just talking about physical strength. It's talking about moral and spiritual strength. The fact that you would even desire to serve Him comes from the strength and the power and the grace of God. Notice, in order that everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. If I don't recognize that, God is not glorified through Jesus Christ in my life. I am glorified by my actions, by my religious activity. To Him be glory and dominion forever. Peter is saying, if you don't recognize that the noble acts that you do, the service that you do is all of grace, you're going to eclipse... The glory of God. A divine eclipse. And Peter says it's all of grace. Which means when he blesses your obedience, he's just crowning his own grace. He's crowning his grace. 
It's what Paul would say in Ephesians 2. We were God's workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus. Notice, you were created in Christ Jesus. God is the one who creates, not us. We don't create ourselves. Created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. We are God's workmanship. You are not your own workmanship. You you are not a person who just woke up one day and said, I've smelled the coffee. It's time to uh, change things about my life. There's a new guy in town now. I'm turning over a new leaf. No, if you've turned over a new leaf, it's because God has made you new. You are God's workmanship. The word there is poema. It's where we get the word poem. You are God's literary masterpiece. Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 9, a very insightful text, verse 16, if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. You get that? Necessity. I can't help but preach the gospel. Necessity has been laid upon me. This is divine necessity. This is effectual grace. He says, woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. I can't help myself. Grace has made this necessary. Grace has changed me. He's not saying that he's a puppet. He's not saying that he's a robot. He's saying that grace has completely transformed his affections. It's completely transformed his will. He says, for if I do this of my own will. In other words, independent of grace independent of divine necessity, if it's because I just got really committed to this, apart from God, I have a reward. But not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. That's a very important passage for understanding our works and how they are grounded in grace. If you desire to worship and glorify God by your obedience... It's because your daddy, your father, has given you the resources to do it. And Jesus is critiquing this mentality that it's something inherent within us. Keep in mind the danger he's in... He's countering here. When we obey God and we do our duties, there can be this rising sense of entitlement to blessing. And you'll see this with people who go through trials and they, they've been very faithful members and they go through trials and they get really mad at God because they, they, they give him their resume and they remind him of all the good things they've done and all of a sudden uh, he's not rewarding them. He's not giving them the merits of their blessing or, or their obedience. But blessing that is entitled isn't grace. That's a paycheck. Keep that in mind. And there are basically two reasons we cannot merit blessing from God. The first reason is we are creatures. And the second reason, we are sinners. Let me explain that. As creatures, all we can do is what God commanded us to do. All we can do is our duty. We can't do more than we're commanded. We can't do more than we than our duty, because we are creatures. And when we've done everything He's commanded us to do, we've only done what we're supposed to do. If I tell my kids to clean their room and they clean their room, I'm not going to take them to Disney World. 
They've only done what they were commanded to do. The reason we cannot merit the blessings of God is because we are creatures and we can only do what we're commanded to do. But the second reason we cannot merit the blessings of God is we're sinners. And we don't even do what we're commanded to do. So even if we do what we're commanded to do, that's just our duty. Why should he give us blessing for doing our duty? And if we, and even on that, we don't do what we're commanded to do because we are sinners. And that brings us to the whole point here. Keep in mind, none of these texts in the Gospels can be read in isolation from the end. The entire Gospel of Luke is preparing us for why the Messiah would have to die on a cross and be raised from the grave. The Gospels were not given to us to give us moral principles for living. That was the whole problem. That's what the Pharisees taught. The Gospels are given to us to show us our need for a Messiah, a Savior, who will be crucified in our place and be raised from the grave. And in this regard, the only one who has ever merited God's favor is Jesus Christ. And he did something as the true servant that we could never do. He obeyed God. And he obeyed him perfectly. He obeyed the law perfectly. And as the God-man, he was able to offer God an infinite, obedient, sacrificial offering. Something that we could not do as mere creatures. And because he was not a sinner, he never ever disobey God in heart, mind, thought, or deed. And then he took on himself the penalty of our sins. The penalty is death. Jesus took the death. He came as the substitute and he was crushed for our salvation. He was raised from the grave for our forgiveness, for our justification, so that we could experience the grace of God. You see, grace is never free. Grace is always costly. The one who renders the grace absorbs the debt. And God the Son took the debt and paid it. And that's why this text is important to us. So that God saves us not because of what we've done. But because of the merit of our Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore all of our service to Him should not be out of this idea of trying to earn blessing but out of a response to his grace. Notice the end of verse 10. He says, we are unworthy servants. What is the idea there? Humility. Someone who has reverence and awe. Someone who recognizes that at the end of the day, all we've done is our duty. And here's the acid test again. If you're a Christian... If you're a true disciple, you will have a spirit of wonder. Because you know your heart. You know the things that you've done. You know the the thoughts that you have. You know the attitudes that you have. The motivations, how sinister they are. And you say, how miraculous, unbelievable, incredible that he would save me. You sing, I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus, the Galilee. 
and wonder how he could love me. A sinner condemned unclean. Man, they ought to write a song with those lyrics. But a person who's trying to get God in debt to him has no wonder. There's no wonder at all. For example, you show up on payday and your boss says to you, I would like to give you a token of my appreciation. He doesn't say that. And you don't say, behold, what manner of love you have displayed to me. You've earned that. That is your check by right. And if you ask a religious person, are you a, are you a believer? Yes, of course I'm a believer. I've been a, a believer all my life. I'm committed to the church. You know, I give a tithe. I sing in the choir. I teach Sunday school. I'm there every time the church doors are open. Of course, I'm a believer. But if you're a Christian, you recognize there's no of course about it. It's all of grace. It's all of grace. And the mediator of that grace, Jesus, is the master of this story. If you don't recognize that, you need to see that. He is the true master of this story. And he did exactly what a master never does. He made himself the servant. And we've already seen that. We saw it in chapter 12, for instance. Verse 37, blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. So there he's already depicted himself as the master who's coming again. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service. And have them recline at table. And he will come and serve them. So the master becomes the servant. And in a few weeks in chapter 22. That is weeks from what he is saying here. In chapter 2, 20, uh, 22 verse 27. For who is greater? One who reclines at table? Or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as one who serves. Jesus is the worthy servant. And he proves it by his utter devotion to the Father. And he proves it by his utter devotion to us as unworthy servants. He came to seek and to save that was lost. He proves it by his resurrection. And now he's welcoming us into the family to feast at his table to feast at his banquet and the supper the lord's supper reminds us that it's not something we deserve it's all of grace if a master serves his servants it's not because the servants have earned the right to be served they've just done their duty at the end of the day Yet how little we've done our duty. How little we've done for God. Infinitely less than what he deserves. And that's why the hub of true discipleship is not do something for Jesus. The hub of true discipleship is living in the reality that Jesus has done everything for you. Everything. He lived the life you could not live. 
He died the death that you deserve. He was raised from the grave demonstrating that the debt has been paid. Paid in full. And that's why we celebrate the table today. The table signals that what we couldn't do for ourselves, God did for us in Jesus. The true servant. So let's pray and prepare ourselves for that table. Father, we bless you for the means 